0: friends, Greg Kokel here, and um, glad to be with you today. Thanks for joining me on the show called Stand to Reason, what I often characterize as clear-thinking Christianity or Christianity worth thinking about. And uh, I've been thinking about it for a long time, more than the nearly 50 years that I have been a follower of Jesus um, and a disciple of Christ. By the way, it's interesting— Excuse me. I just finished reading through the book of Acts again, and uh, actually, when I was in Wisconsin before I'd go to bed at night, I usually try to do this a little bit. You know, uh, I have some things I like to read to kind of wind me down as part of my uh, part of my what do you call routine for going to bed. But the first thing I grab is scripture in some translation, and I and I read some. I do in the morning, uh, if I can. Usually, I do, Uh, but. It's easy to do when I go to bed, just even if it's five minutes. I read a couple of Proverbs, a psalm, whatever. But I've been just working through uh, the book of Acts when I was on vacation, and I like it. It's a vigorous book, and it's interesting to see what happens. But one thing that stood out for me is how the believers were described, and sometimes they are described by the word believer. Not usually by the word Christian, because they were first called Christians in Antioch, and that comes up later, Um, and it was kind of a put-down word, you know. Uh, Oh, these Christians kind of thing. But they didn't refer to themselves as Christians. They referred to themselves as the Way, and because they were following the Way, uh, so the group was known as the Way. But um, the text more consistently describes them as disciples, the disciples met here, and then the disciples met there, and then Paul's disciples lowered him down. Incidentally, when Paul was on his way to the ro- on the road to Damascus, and was struck blind, encountered Christ, and then regained his sight and stayed in Damascus, and uh, and and taught for a while as now a new believer converted former persecutor of Christians, etc. When he endured persecution or faced persecution, he escaped it because and here's what the text says, his disciples lowered him in a basket on the outside of the wall and he was able to escape. So not only were Christians characterized as disciples, which is a follower of Jesus, a disciplined follower of Jesus, they weren't just believers of some sort, or Christian in some way. They were disciples of Jesus of Nazareth through the tutoring of other disciples. And here, Paul, he wasn't on this on the, uh, the scene very long as a disciple of Christ before he was having an impact as a discipler passing the baton, so to speak, in a marginal ways. He's a younger believer. He's got a pretty good start. He knows about the way. He knows about a lot of the doctrine, because he's had to deal with them, and certainly he knows Hebrew scriptures. So he wasn't beginning at ground zero, but nevertheless, he, as a disciple, <clears throat> is already building other Christian disciples right from the get-go. So... uh, just just something that stood out for me. Now, I had, uh, I got a caller on board, and I'll get to uh, Tim in Naperville, Illinois, shortly. Uh, and if you are listening live streaming and want to call in, 855-243-9975, that's the number. If you are uh, not listening live stream, but by uh, podcast, as many most do, actually, if you want to call uh, me, that's the number, too. But just call me on Tuesdays between 4 and 6 p.m. Los Angeles time, 855-243-9975. Incidentally, if you're calling from outside of the U.S., uh, dial up our local area code, our national code, the number 1, then 562-424-8229. I uh, got an interesting question th- the, uh, uh, recently from... Um, uh, someone that has a, goes to a reform church and there's a requirement regarding communion that the questioner that I was engaging with uh, was was a bit troubled about because the requirement wasn't biblical okay and the uh, the the requirement the church had for communion was that you needed to be baptized in order to have communion. And if you hadn't been baptized, you should go through that process. As a follower of Christ, you should be baptized. And then you could share the Lord's Table with the Church. Now, this person's concern was that uh, that's not a requirement in the New Testament. So how can the church, the local church, make this requirement? Now um, I thought about it for a while. I'm, I'm sympathetic to the requirement, even though it is not a biblical requirement. And I have two lines of thinking here, um, or maybe three elements. One of them is that a, a local church, it seems to me, with regards to the operation of their community, can impose any additional restrictions they want as part of their community that they think is good for their community. The leadership could say, well, this is not a biblical requirement. But we are making it a requirement, because we think it's a good requirement for a number of reasons. okay? Um, and, uh, and, and, and therefore, since communion is such an important thing, it's a central feature of the life of the Church, it's one of two biblical sacraments, the other one is Christian baptism, um, and because there are consequences to taking the Lord's Supper in an inappropriate fashion. Now I think that generally when you are involved with communion, um, this point is made and people are invited to confess any known sin, Um, and therefore they wouldn't be be taking or eating judgment to themselves or whatever, however Paul puts that in Corinthians. But um, that isn't the, the that itself isn't a biblical requirement, confessing any known sin. It doesn't talk about that. It just says that you shouldn't be taking it in an inappropriate manner, and there could be consequences. People get sick. Some even die, Paul said. And of course, there were things that were happening in the local church there in Corinth that were pretty bizarre around the Lord's table. And so that is likely, in my mind, what he was referring to, not whether you had known sin that you needed to confess. Nothing wrong with that, by the way. It's good to get sober-minded regarding morality before the Lord as you're at the Lord's table. But um, the point I'm making is that communion is a big deal. Okay? And it turns out If you think about it, in the early church, what is the first thing that happened to a person who became a believer? They got baptized. And we read about that in the book of Acts, and it was very quick. There weren't classes they took, there weren't schools they went to, there weren't whatever. They just got baptized. Now, of course, people are not baptized generally, in most cases baptized so quickly. There's a reason for that. And the reason is, in the early days, especially with the Jews, there, were law, there was a solid understanding of biblical theism and then a clear characterization of the gospel that was unfettered by cultural elements that could get in the way of a proper understanding of salvation. Nowadays, something like 65% of Americans self-identify as Christian wow, that's a lot of us. No, it's not, because they're not Christian. They simply self-identify. When you ask them questions about the content of their convictions, it's clear that they reject most—I mean, the majority of them reject many of the theological foundation stones of classical Christianity. Okay, so they're, they're not really Christian, but they're Christian in their own mind. I'm not putting them down, I'm just simply saying, nowadays Christian has a very uh, broad definition and, and represents lots of theological variations. And when I say lots of theological variations, I mean variations on things that are theologically significant, really basic stuff. Okay, so consequently, if somebody says they are a Christian and they want to receive the Lord's Supper, well, what does that mean, that they're a Christian? And so churches, to be safe and to build and disciple properly in the local community, are going to require a class. Well, you've we got to make sure you understand what this is all about. And a lot of times in those classes, people who are Christian who want to have communion— or who want to be baptized, okay, instead of just jumping into the pool or whatever, they have to take this class. They end up becoming Christians during the class because they weren't beforehand. They didn't understand. And if they're going to be baptized, baptism is an identification not only with with Christ in theologically profound ways, but also with a community of other Christians. And where those ideas were much more self-evident early on in the early church, and there weren't all these competing ideas of what it meant to be a Christian, now you've got all kinds of confusion. So instead of dunking somebody the minute they make a proclamation of Christ, though there are denominations that do that, um, you make sure they understand what's going on. And once they're baptized, now you know... Based on that kind of education and assessment, that they know the Lord, and therefore they're part of the community of believers, and they can share the Lord's table without concern. And so, for those reasons, I explained to my friend that uh, I don't think this is anything to fuss about. It turns out in this particular church, everything else is pretty cool. All that I was able to discover about this church was really solid. And so saying, yeah, just to be careful, we want to make sure that if you're going to share the table, you have to have to have been baptized. And to get baptized, we want to make sure you understand what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. And then you can celebrate the Lord's death until he returns with us together in safety. So anyway, there's a, just a couple of thoughts about that particular issue. Um, let's um, let's go quickly here. I realize I did not doing my timer here, and I didn't do that, so forget about that. Maybe I'll do this. Okay. Just kitchen work here on my end. Uh, let's go to Tim in Naperville, Illinois. Tim, welcome to Standard Reason. Hi.
1: Hi, Greg. How are you?
0: I'm doing good. Thank you. And you?
1: Good. I'm well. <laughs> good. I'm uh heading up to your neck of the woods in the, the north woods of
0: Wisconsin. I know. Wisconsin. Naperville actually was <clears throat> fairly close, relatively speaking, very close to where I went to high school or graduated, which is uh, York High School in Elmhurst. And thing in fact I think Naperville you were in our district when I was uh on track at York High School. I'm not I can't yeah, remember I, for I, sure.
1: I believe so, right? Yeah. Yeah. So
0: So, welcome to the show. What's up?
1: Thank you. So anyway, um, my question, uh, it pertains to God's providence and God's will in our life, but kind of more specifically, sort of the application of that concept. And where I'm struggling, you know, you, you hear this that, you know, it's said that, you know, nothing happens to us that God doesn't either ordain or allow to yeah, happen. right. And, you know, even I was reading the Heidelberg Catechism, and under Providence, you know, it, it basically says that, you know, God so, so rules his creatures that, you know, neither leaf or, and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and lean years, food and drink, health and sickness, prosperity and poverty, all things come to us, not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. Mm -hmm. So, you know, when, when you think about that stuff and then, you know, where I say the application, so when things happen to us, and a lot of times when I think about this, I'm thinking about what I view as bad things that happen, you know, in my life, whether it's financial hardship, whether Mm -hmm. it's something with employment, loss of a job or something, Mm -hmm. or, you know, specifically like a divorce um, and things like that, or the loss of a, a relationship, right, and, right. and things like that. And then I'm struggling to think. Well, did God actually cause those things to happen? You know, did he did he want the divorce to happen? Did he ordain that? And you would you would have to say no, because he hates divorce. He doesn't want anybody to be divorced. But you know, then you say, well, he allowed it to happen. Mm-hmm and that he'll he'll take that circumstance and use it for for good. You know, I, I understand that, but I guess where I'm struggling is that how do I know which things, you know, perhaps God ordained to happen in my life versus which things he just sort of stepped back and let those things happen,
2: mm-hmm.
1: you know, and now, you know, he'll use it for, for some good. But uh, I, I don't know, it's just, helpful to understand, like, if something happens to me and I can rest and have a peace that, well, will God wanted that to happen, God ordained that in my life for whatever reason, so I can take kind of solace in that, that, you know, it, it was His will mm-hmm. versus, you know, you know, did something happen that God didn't necessarily want to have happen and He just merely kind of stepped back and allowed it to. Mm -hmm. You know, and I I just struggle with those things and trying to understand how this works.
0: Wow. Um, This is a huge issue. Uh, It's not just a huge issue theologically. It is a huge issue for the reason you're asking it, for personal reasons, navigating our daily life. And uh, uh, this is uh, one of those times when my uh, faithful sidekick who is not here right now, Amy Hall, would be... (laughs) although she's listening and probably chuckling, would really have a lot to say because uh, she's done a lot more thinking about this um, than I have, and uh, and and her input would be really helpful. But I, I have done a lot of thinking myself for the practical reasons that you mentioned. And a lot depends on how a person is using the word ordain, um, and uh, sometimes ordain would mean that he you know, purposed this to happen this way, in that he ordained it, that means—I mean, this is the way some people would understand Mm it—that means he decided he's going to make this happen that way. Mm -hmm. All right? Or—and this is in Heidelberg Confession, as you read it—the distinction between ordain and allow, I would think that Heidelberg Confession has in mind ordain causing to happen and then the word allow as something he does not cause but permits to happen for a good purpose he has in mind. All right? Mm-hmm. So there is a certain sense where the distinction between those words is really important, because it has to do with culpability for wrong and evil and harm, okay? Um, but there's another sense in which the, the distinction is not that important, Um, as I read it. And that is because in either sense, God is still in charge. God Mm -hmm. is still there in the midst of the circumstances. And this is why I don't ask the question, did God cause this thing to happen, this broken relationship? or um, Actually, a broken relationship isn't a wrong in itself, but it may Mm -hmm. be broken because of wrongs that took place, and so if God is <clears throat> causing the broken relationship, if He ordains it in that strong sense, He had to ordain and cause the the uh, the circumstances that caused the break, and mm-hmm. then now you've got a circumstance where you're thinking, I mean, well, maybe God is morally culpable for what took place, and that's not good, okay. Mm-hmm. Um, but if what we're saying is, you no know, God maybe didn't cause that to take place, but he allowed it for a good purpose that would eventuate, so you could have a, a child born out of wedlock, uh-huh. who then becomes an incredible blessing to other people. And by the way, all of my children are examples of that. All three of my children, my stepson and both of my daughters who are adopted. And so, the circumstances that resulted in a child being born out of wedlock were sinful circumstances, but the consequence that God ordained for that behavior, that behavior He allowed, the consequence you could say He ordained, that it would accomplish a good end in our lives, that He's the one who's in charge of that as well. So. For, For all practical purposes, in my life, I don't have to make the distinction between ordain or allow. Um, It's clear to me that if a sinful act is committed, God didn't cause the act. But that's really, in the long run, not so relevant for me to know that, because even though God didn't cause that in the strong sense of ordain, he still allowed it to take place and he has promised that in my life he is going to use it for good that's in romans chapter 8 and uh, i think it's 828 what's curious or interesting to me about that passage we know that god causes all things to work together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose is the is the purpose that he has in mind that he's going to use the thing for, and that's in the next, the rest of the verse. For those whom he foreknew, he predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. So even these awful things that take place in our lives as Christians, God is going to use in our lives to move us towards the goal of godliness, Christ likeness. That's the promise. Now, what if the person is not a, not a Christian? Well, that verse doesn't apply to them. But that doesn't mean that God doesn't have a purpose in bad things he allows to befall other people, sinful things that happen that befall other people. Now, do I know that purpose? No, because God didn't tell me that. He has told us the purpose for Christians in general terms, to be conformed to the image of his Son. But he hasn't said that he hasn't told us the you know the 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 big picture issues um mm-hmm. so um, and on a practical note i have a i would say a, a fairly robust understanding of the sovereignty of god and amy would make that case even better than i could um and so that helps me in fact i just recently had conversations with my, with my team today ab- about this larger issue of the sovereignty of God in our lives, and the hardship that befalls us in different circumstances, which hardship reflects sinful actions of other people in our lives, yet God is using them to conform us to him in a very important fashion. And uh, and this is true of every Christian's life. We don't talk about it that much in Christianity because we have an overly, I think, triumphant declaration of Christianity. And I say overly, not because Christians don't triumph, but rather th- the emphasis that triumph looks a certain way. You know, triumph is, you know, we're always, you know, rah, 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 praise the Lord, hallelujah, aren't we great? And God's blessing us and all that other stuff, you know, and there's not a sober, not a, <clears throat> excuse me, a healthy emphasis on a, a sober understanding of, of how life works. For Christians, this side of the resurrection, but if you read First Peter, First Peter's thick with it, and uh, so are a lot of other books, but First Peter especially, written to suffering Christians, as was Hebrews, as was First Thessalonians, as was Second Thessalonians, as was Second Timothy, you know, uh, I mean these these are well Second Timothy was a pastoral epistle, but you know the, there's these we've got all of these passages these these. Uh, second Timothys written by Paul was in his jail and he's facing execution for example so so was philippians and so was ephesians so was colossians you know so you got like whoa that's pretty intense but there's not i think a healthy reflection on that and so people get caught by surprise by difficulty and hardship that comes their way yet all of these things come to them from the hand of god which is what Heidelberg confession there is meaning to emphasize with regards to the um, the sovereignty of God. Now I will, I, I, I want to add one other thing that may seem a little unusual, but um, th- the way I think you read this is that uh, things don't happen by chance according to the confession there that you read, not by chance, mm-hmm. but by his by by the his fatherly hand. Okay, well, in one sense, of course, I, perf- I completely agree with that, um, in light of what I've just told you. Uh-huh. However, as I'm talking to you, okay, I have a yellow uh, pad of paper here that I've written some things on. As I'm talking, my hands are fidgeting with it, and it's moving the, the pad around a little bit. And now I'm self-conscious, so I'm putting my hands in my lap and not doing it. Well, wait a minute. Did God ordain... Or- all of that fidgeting is God going to use that for some purpose? I don't think so. Yeah. I don't think so. I think I did that. And I don't I think it has no meaning at all, except for me fidgeting. <clears throat> so I do not think there is a purpose in everything that happens. And I don't think we need to commit ourselves to that to have a robust sense of. Of the sovereignty of God, and by the way, as I'm t- talking, I'm I'm gesturing now, and it's not helping you because you can't see me, and it's not helping anybody watching because my hands are below the camera screen, cut out there. So you know why I'm just that's because that's what I do. So um, so I think that there are lots of things that do kind of happen by chance, in the sense that they're just outworkings of other things that have no significance to them. However, the things that you mentioned when you said, what about this and this and this and this, these are all weighty concerns. When these tragic things happen in our lives, you know, that's when, of course, we need to have a robust understanding of the sovereignty of God. Mm -hmm. And the, the word that I offered today of encouragement along these lines to the team can be captured in a simple phrase that I utter all the time to myself and to other people. And it's just three words. Oh, wait a minute. Oh, yeah. Well, it can be three words or two words. If I'm talking to God, it's three words. If I'm talking to others, it's two words. And what I say to God is, You know, Lord. You know. Mm Mm-hmm. So, if I'm facing a really hard thing, and I'm before the Lord, I'm thinking, man, I don't, I don't know what's going on, God. I, don't have the, I, I do not know even what to do. I don't know how to comport myself. I don't know how to answer this challenge. I don't know how to talk to this person. I don't know what's going on. But you know, Lord. You know, Lord. So, those three words are meant to pacify me in an appropriate way to help me acknowledge that in the midst of my own confusion, I am not left alone. I am still in the Father's hand. No matter what it is that's happening, I'm still there. And I'm safely there. Now, of course, safely there does not mean that I'm not subject to the contingencies of living in a fallen world with all of its hardships and pain. It means I am ultimately safe in the long run, and in the short run, I'm even safe in these circumstances because God has promised to use these hard circumstances for my good, Romans 8.28. And I tell you, this this isn't just, in a sense, theology for me. This is very real. And this is why this, this line, you know, Lord, is so frequently on my lips. Or if I'm talking to somebody else, I just shrug and say, God knows. I don't. God knows. But it's not a fatalistic shrug. It's an acknowledgement that there, there is a plan, there is a purpose, there is a sensibility to this. There is mind to the madness here. And it's God's mind. And He's good for it. You know, Paul said in, I think, second, first, first, first Timothy, one of the Timothys, I think it's first. I know in whom I have believed and that he is able to keep that which I have entrusted to him until that day. I know in whom I have believed, and that he is able to keep that which I have entrusted to him until that day." And so that's just a line that's, you know, I cited it from memory, but I never memorized it. It just stuck. And I, and I reflect on it. I know in whom I have believed. I, I, I don't know what's going on. But he knows. God, you know. You know, Lord. So that's how this understanding of ordain or allow, all the cash is out in my own life in a practical way.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And um, I, like I said at the beginning, I this is a very important kind of issue, not just theologically, sovereignty of God, human freedom— that discussion, but just in practical terms. Actually, it's more important in practical terms, I think, because it's where the rubber meets the road with us. And even though we can't figure out the high theology of sovereignty and freedom, we still know, we ought to know, and this is why I think Heidelberg is spot-on, that uh, nothing—well, that what it says is not by chance but by his fatherly hand. We are not victims of accident, is the point. Even though there are incidental things that happen without purpose, by chance, me moving the pad of paper around on the desk here while we're talking, uh, when it comes to things that matter, the, we, we are not victims of circumstance. But we have a father who cares for us. And I think this is the like Heidelberg Confession is a reformed confession. And uh, not that non reformed types can't have a rich understanding of the sovereignty of God, but I think the Reformed folk do better at that, let's just put it that way. So I don't know, does this yeah. make any well, sense well, to you?
1: It, yeah, I mean, so, you know, when in hardships and difficult times, in tragedies or whatnot that may happen in our life, you know, we we rest in the fact that God is in control and, you know, in the long run, we're safe, as you say. And, and that god will lead us through this that he will use it for something good but that doesn't necessarily mean that things you know in life and on this earth that things are going to turn out you know in a good way so i i kind of struggle with you know in in the long run yes i know that i'm safe i know that god's in control i know that he's using this for good but you know, I still. Okay, so let me ask a question hurricane.
0: here, Tim. I want you to think about your words. You said, uh, we, we don't know whether it's going to work out in a good way, though we know that God is using it for good. So you uh, certainly yeah. mean good way in a different sense the first time than in the right. second. Right. And, so, and I'm sympathetic to that because I think what you mean is it's going to work out like good in my subjective experience in the moment, like the hardship is going to be over, and the thing that I yearned for that was not satisfied is now being satisfied. Mm -hmm. And we don't have a promise that's going to happen. Right. People are in difficult marriages, for example, and uh, they're not going to ever get better. Some will, but some won't, because Mm -hmm. God hasn't promised that he will do that. What he has promised—I'm just using marriage as a kind of a classic example— is to be with us in the midst of it. You know, I had a a teacher early on my first years at the Light and Powerhouse in the mid-70s, Tom Brewer, and he said something I'll never forget. It's somewhat memorable because it's referring to a Simon and Garfunkel song, and I especially liked those guys. But here's what he said. Jesus is not a bridge over troubled waters. But... He will pull you through the troubled waters if you can stand the toe. Mm. That's pretty cool, isn't it?
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: I, I've I've not only used that line myself with audiences to properly prepare them for life with Christ as disciples, but on myself as an encouragement. He's not a bridge over troubled waters. And I used marriage as an example a moment ago. There's a, an excellent book on marriage, and I can't remember, Gary. the author is Gary something, but I remember the title, very simple, and the subtitle. The title is Sacred Marriage. And the subtitle is, Maybe God Designed Marriage Not to Make Us Happy, But to Make Us Holy. And then, of course, yeah, he goes yeah. through lots of marriages that never got happy, but how God yeah. used it in people's lives to make them more holy holy. So when you say, you know, I don't know if it's going to turn out for good, well, in one sense I like, can't promise that, if good means you will have the consequence that you desire. Uh, but we can say it will work out for good in the most important sense, because God has promised to, to do that. Um, and I, look, it, I, am, I am entirely sympathetic to the concern that you or anybody else express in this, because there are things in my life that I wish were different. And I can't change them. Mm -hmm. And I want them to change. My heart would be more satisfied if these circumstances were changed. But in the midst of that, I I can't say, well, I know they're going to change. And I've had people say, well, God's going to change that. and My response is, how can you promise that when God hasn't promised that?
1: Right, and that that's exactly kind of the heart of my question because I have people that tell me this, and you know they say things like, "I know that God's going to redeem you. I know God's going to do this and that." And I'm like, "I, He hasn't promised that, so how can I, how can I, you know, have and, trust in that yeah, when yeah. that's not been promised?" Well, it know? depends
0: in what sense they meant redeem. If they meant give yeah. you what you wanted, and some people will quote this passage in Psalm whatever one. Th- 37 or whatever God will give you the desires of your heart I have a hard time with some of those songs because I can't uh, I it, it may be that you know we have desires deep in our heart that and then those desires are projected on what things we think will fulfill those deep desires and so we want the thing we think will fulfill the desire but what God wants to give us is the thing that actually meets the desires need deep down inside and it may yeah. be something different than what we thought was going to mean. Maybe that's what the psalmist is talking about. But sometimes people are going to cite that, like, you want this thing really badly, God will give you the desires of your heart, that means this thing. And I don't think that's a good good counsel. Um, yeah. Because as you pointed out, God, now, he may redeem it. He may he might, to redeem means to purchase out of slavery by the payment of a price. So you get something by a payment, and that God may take this ugly thing and do something and bless it and enrich it and you come out of it free and noble and whatever, but he may not. And that's the part we can't, we can't presume, because that's more like presuming a God for something he said he hasn't, he's not going to do. He, we have right. to trust him in spite of the unanswered prayer we're facing right now. That's a struggle. That's just real stuff.
1: Yeah, yeah, and it's just, I, I guess, just hard to, I guess, accept, you know, what What if these circumstances never change, no. you know, in, you know, like you said, there's things in your life that you would really like for them to change, and they may never, and you no. don't have a promise from God that he's going to change those, right. so you, on the one hand, you can't, like, put your faith in that because there's no promise for that, Correct. You
0: know? What I can do is put my faith in God. So here, I'll give you a verse. Uh, I don't know the number except for the chapter. It's the last verse in chapter 4 of First Peter. And here's what Peter says. Let, let him who suffers according to the will of God entrust himself to a faithful creator in doing what is right. Let him who suffers according to the will of God entrust himself to a faithful creator in doing what is right. So, <clears throat> what is our MO? when well, we don't know what to do. We do the right thing. And that's an act of trust in God. So, if, well, let's just say, you know, a lot of people are thinking about relationships right now. You're in a relationship that's not good. The, the Things aren't happening the way you like them to happen. Mm-hmm. Okay, so now what? You can pray it down, and look, you have not because you ask not. Pray it in. Do the best you can. And that's what I do with circumstances that I'd like to have different. I pray, 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 pray. But that doesn't mean God's going to say yes to that prayer, or at least not at this time. So i got to pray and then trust God by doing what is right. Trust God by doing what is right. Yeah. And sometimes that's not always an easy thing to figure out, the right thing, but... um, we don't return evil for evil. I mean, there's a good relationship rule. Right. <laughs> yeah. But, and I realize that sometimes in relationships that I've been in, that I've, you know, my impulse in response to something is a, often just a clever example of returning evil for evil. I'm just, I get to the heart of it, I think, you know, Greg, all you're doing is just getting back at that person. Oh, it's clever, or you've kind of Um, covered it over a little bit. You've disguised it, but it's really just returning evil for evil. Evil, you can't do that. That's not doing what is right. Anyway, so that's part of the struggle we have to look at. But we entrust ourselves to a faithful Creator, doing what is right.
1: Yeah. Okay, Okay, Tim. All right. That's great. Uh, thank you very much.
0: Great. And uh, your, thank you for the call. And I think that you called and raised this issue, and we had a chance to talk about it. It's going to be helpful to a lot of people. And it's just helpful to me in my own life just reviewing it. So I appreciate that, Tim. All right. All the best to you. Thank you. Okay. Right. Bye-bye now. All right. Let's take a break, and we'll have a final segment when we return. Hey friends, would you like to be encouraged throughout your week with timely relevant content meant to bolster your knowledge, wisdom, and character? Or maybe you have a desire to be connected with other like-minded Christians from around the world. If so, then you need to follow Stand to Reason on social media. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Not only will you be able to interact with other Stand to Reason followers, but you'll also stay up to date and informed on our latest resources and events. In our current culture, it's important to have something of value to break up your social media feed. So just visit str.org and find the links to all of our social media platforms at the bottom of the homepage. Many people claim that if abortion is made illegal, women will be forced to get dangerous back alley abortions and end up injuring or killing themselves. Well, how do you graciously respond to such a claim? Find out in the most recent episode of my podcast, Thinking Out Loud with Alan Schliemann. Look for it on Spotify, iTunes, your favorite podcast app, or at the top of the homepage at str.org.
1: Do you have a passion to train people in apologetics, but you don't know where to start? You may be interested in starting an STR Outpost. STR Outposts are local communities of Christians seeking answers to the hard questions about Christianity. Each outpost is led by a qualified director who trains others with STR content and curriculum in their local church. By becoming an outpost director, you will be equipped with the content and coaching you need to lead your own outpost. We currently have more than 60 outposts across the country and we're adding more each month. If you're interested in learning more about starting an outpost or you want to find a current outpost in your area, visit str.org outposts you can also email me, Robbie Lashua, at outposts at str.org.
0: All right, friends, Greg Cokel here, Stand a Reason, and we're going to do some uh, open mic calls. I thought I saw an uh, open mic question here about tithing. That's what I'm looking at right now. Oh, yeah, there it is. It's uh, Philip from uh, Ghana, or Ghana, G-H-A-N-A. That's Ghana, right? I, I, I remember when we had a staff meeting once when I lived at, when I was working at Hope Chapel, and somebody asked, where do Norwegians come from? It was a moment of just confusion. And someone else said, Norwegia, you know, like that. I know what Ghana is. It's in Africa, but I don't know I pronounced it with the H Gahana. Yes, uh from Gahana. So this will be Philip from Accra, A C C R A, Ghana. And uh let's go ahead and see uh what he has to say here about Titan.
2: Hi guys, my name is Philip recording from Accra, Ghana. My question has to do with Titan. So I think I know Craig's stance on this. Um, I remember from a, some podcasts ago, you answered a question and I'm having difficulties retrieving that podcast. I don't know if there's a way I can just go somewhere on your website and type something and different, different podcasts or articles or stuff like that. You're spoken about it will pop up. Maybe it's already there, but I don't know about it. That'd be very helpful if you could answer that. Aside the question I've come to ask, I think someone like Mike Winger, I think he has something like that on his website where you can type a question, type a word, and everything whether that podcast article will pop up. I think that would really be helpful for people like me who would like to go back and re-listen and re-watch. So my question has to do with Titan, like I said, and I already know Craig stands on it. So I was discussing this with a friend, and I realized I've not really read on it myself to really give an answer. So it will be disingenuous just to repeat what Craig said. So um biblical references, old, new, as to why you believe what you believe would be very helpful. Or other things I can go and read to better grasp an understanding for myself. That would be very helpful. Thank you very much.
0: Okay. Um, There was some question about finding things on our website, and just so you know, uh, Philip and also anybody else, um, there's a magnifying glass in the top right-hand corner of the website. That's our search feature. So if you just go to the magnifying glass and just type in, and it's the kind of thing they have on a lot of websites, but sometimes they're difficult to find. So the top right-hand corner, and then you could search. And so the question is on tithing, apparently. And so um, if you want my view on tithing and or anything else that we've written on tithing, just type in tithing <laughs> or tithe in that box and see what happens. But I will give you um my perspective and my biblical perspective, but let me I want to back up and offer a procedural um, like insight or or um, uh, something okay. <laughs> In the Gospels, Jesus encounters Peter, who's gone out fishing with a net, and he's fished all day, hasn't gotten anything. Jesus encounters Peter, and he tells Peter, take the boat back out and throw the net on the other side of the boat. And Peter says, look, I've been fishing all day, i got nothing. What does one side of the boat or the other side have anything to do with anything? Jesus said, just do it, essentially, this is my paraphrase, but then Peter throws the net on the other side of the boat, and he gets a lot of fish. Now, here's my question, and this has to do with procedure, assessing scriptural commands, so to speak. Um, Was Jesus giving Peter fishing advice? That is, when he said, throw your net on the deep side, was he instructing him about fishing? I actually read an article once where the person said, yes, because the big fish are in the deep water. All right, that's not always true, but nevertheless, does this represent a command given to Peter that we are obliged to follow? that when we go out fishing, are we obliged to fish in deep water? Because Jesus says, go back out and fish in the deep water. Now, it's obvious that Jesus wasn't giving fishing advice, and he was like, here's how to—you always throw your net on that side rather than the other side, because that's deeper water, that's where the fish are at. Jesus was performing a miracle, and he was instructing an individual in a unique circumstance to do something that Jesus wanted him to do. He was obliged to obey Jesus in that circumstance, but for a particular purpose that was germane to that moment. It does not represent a command that we are obliged to follow. Okay, now this is a pretty straightforward example. There are lots of times people told, rather, Jesus told people to do things. Go down to the pool, wash your face three times, or whatever it was. Actually, there was a... uh, a Gentile in the Old Testament, Elijah said, to do that, go seven times in the river and bathe, and it'll deal with your leprosy or something like that. Well, wait a minute. Does that mean, oh, this is now a prescription for all of us to follow? There are times when that's the case. That is, where someone is told something to do, that thing has kind of universal moral application. The woman caught in adultery, Jesus said, go and sin no more. He wasn't just referring, I mean, his comment wasn't one that just applies to her, though that was the circumstance. It's because nobody should be doing that sin, and since you're doing that sin, you should stop doing it. So there are some things that are universal in nature that Jesus gives as a command, but some things are not. They're for particular circumstances. Okay, now with that in mind, here's the question. What about tithing? Now what tithing is, is tenthing. It's giving one tenth of your income to God, in one way or another. A lot of Christians believe in tithing, especially pastors. Okay, and um, and they cite passages from the Hebrew Scriptures, um, one especially from Malachi, where the Jews are being uh, upbraided for not tithing properly, as they were commanded, and they are stealing from God. And so the application of that verse a lot of times is, look at it, if you're not tithing, you are stealing from God. Okay, where was the tithe meant to go? Well, is it going to the storehouse? What was the storehouse? Well, that was the the machinery of government for Israel, basically, because Israel was a theocracy. So as a religious country governed by religious people. And when you read the Mosaic Covenant, and its um, its second, um, uh, the, the second time the Mosaic Covenant was given, which is in the book of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomos, Second Law, you see this set of laws that are repeated. Before, you see it once at Sinai, and then the second time um, after the generation that wandered in the wilderness as it died, they're about to take the land, and so Moses gives the law a second time. So you got Exodus, Leviticus, then you got Numbers wandering, then you have Deuteronomy, where the law is given a second time. Okay, who is this law given to? It's given to Jews. It is a contract covenant between God and Jews. It is not a contract between God and anyone else. Now, there are some things in the contract that reflect universal laws. Thou shalt not murder, one of the Ten Commandments, okay? Why, is that just for Jews? No, nobody should murder. And so when we make a law for Jews, we've got to include that in there for Jews too. But there are lots of other things that are in that law that nobody now no Gentile was ever expected to do. No Gentile was expected to to do these particular sacrifices for the particular purposes that Moses identified God wanted them Jews to do the sacrifices for. That wasn't for them. That was for the nation of Israel. In fact, some of these laws were there specifically to distinguish them and to uh, isolate them culturally. From these other pagan nations, so that they wouldn't be like them in other ways. So you got all these odd laws that made Israel unique for Israel. Now Israel was a theocracy. So you have laws that pertain to religious kinds of things, but you also have laws that pertain to the execution of judgment in, in the government. How is the government to function? How do governments how do governments function? What makes it possible for governments to function? They get taxes. The people pay taxes, and they serve in their military. And this is something that—and then the government will govern them and provide for them, and that's exactly the way, especially Deuteronomy, is structured. I am the God who rescued you, okay? You serve me, you pay taxes to me, you worship me alone, you fight my battles, and I'll take care of you. Okay, so there—and if you don't, I'm not going to take care of you. It's a conditional covenant. So when you look at the circumstances under which tithing, which was one aspect of that Mosaic law, tenthing of the income to the government, which was a religious institution, that was obligatory for the Jews under that covenant. Gentiles were never obliged to tithe because this was not a covenant with Gentiles. Now, one of the reasons I know that the principle of tithing—I should say, not the principle, but the command to tithe is not something that applies in the New Testament—is because uh, like other principles like martyr and theft and blah, all those other universal moral principles are repeated, tithing is not. Now, there is one time when Jesus talks about tithing, it's in the end of the Gospel of Matthew, I think it's chapter 25 or somewhere around there. And he says, you tithe mint, dill, and cumin, you give one-tenth of your spices, but you ignore the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy, etc. You, you, you do the little thing, but you don't do the big thing. And you do the little thing for a religious show, but you don't do the good th- big thing because it needs to be done. It's right to do. Okay." And then he says, these things you should have done, these little things, without neglecting the big things. So somebody's going to say, oh, see, Jesus is saying we should be tithing. Okay, who is Jesus talking to? Jesus is talking to Jews. Under what covenant? Under the Old Covenant. Was it right for Jews to tithe under the Old Covenant? Yes, that was the frame of reference of his remark. He wasn't saying the church is supposed to tithe. And one of the reasons I know this for sure is if you go to the beginning of that chapter, and I don't have it open in front of me, so I can't tell you, I think chapter 25, maybe, 26, somewhere in there, Matthew. The very first verse says, whatever the Jewish leadership tells you to do from Moses, you do it. Just don't do as they do. He's telling the Jews to follow the law of Moses, but don't follow the example of the Jewish leaders." Okay, well whose obligation is it to follow the laws of Moses? It's the Jews' obligation under the Old Covenant, which is the context of his comments later on regarding tithing. And that's it. Once the Old Covenant is done and the New Covenant is initiated, it's a different set of rules. It's no longer tenthing by legal obligation. It is generous giving. As one has determined in his own heart, as the Lord has prospered, and you want to read into this as the Lord has prospered as tithe, you're you're making a mistake. Paul would have said tithe there in Second Corinthians, wherever that appears. He doesn't say that the Lord loves a cheerful giver, not somebody who's forced by compulsion. You do what you've determined in your own heart. So the New Testament model is giving, not tithing. Now, if you want to give ten percent as a model, as it you know just a number to do your math on, fine, no problem there. Not obligatory. So there's my proof text. Deuteronomy and Exodus and Leviticus, the Mosaic law dictating obligations to Jews, not to Gentiles. Hope that helps. Philip from Ghana. You have a beautiful voice, by the way. And I thank you for that question. Greg Kokel here. For stand a reason, give them heaven, friends. Bye bye.